0: Welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 5, The Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms. Today we return to our study following the Germanic tribe migrations, and this time we will follow the Angles, Saxons, Jutes into the former Roman Territory controlled by the native Britons, basically what we know today is the southern portion of the Great Britain Island. Most historians focus on the migrations of the Angles, saxons and Jutes from the northern Germanic lands into the Great Island, primarily occupied by native Britons. Now, originally thought to be significant invasions with large forces, modern historians tend to think the migrations came at a slower pace than previously thought. Regardless, the Germanic migrations into Great Britain seems to have been occurring quite regularly by the 430s AD and after that. The Angles, from whom the name England would derive, along with the Saxons and Jutes, were believed to have lived in northern Germany, with the Jutes primarily occupying the areas of modern Denmark today. By the time they arrived in Great Britain they encountered natives who had been previously living under Roman rule. While the Romans and Germanic tribes were certainly familiar with each other, by the time the majority of the migrations were taking place, the Romans had basically pulled out of the area as the Western Roman Empire had begun to decline on the continent, as we discussed in Episode 2. Now, interestingly, when the Romans did occupy the southern portion of Great Britain, They had employed many of the same administrative tactics that they had used in Gaul, which we discussed in the last episode, number four. The head of the civil administration was called a vicarius, who answered to a prefect in Trier on the continent, but under him were four provincial governors who were responsible for collecting taxes. The Roman military garrisons were under the command of a dux, who we saw were used in Roman Gaul, while the mobile forces were under the command of a comis, again a term that should be familiar to you if you listened to the last episode. Now, unlike the Merovingian Franks, who adopted many of the Roman administrative practices and the terms, the native Britons did not hang on to them once the Romans abandoned Britain, nor did the Anglo-Saxon tribes use them either. In fact, much of the Roman influence was either extinguished by the time of major Germanic migrations, or was simply not adopted in the long run, like they were by the Merovingians in Francia. And this is why the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms remained much more Germanic in their customs, language, politics, and legal practices than what developed in Old Roman Gaul or Francia by the Franks. Historian John Blair suggests that one reason why Roman Britain disintegrated, uh, unlike Roman Gaul, which lasted and became absorbed by the Merovingians, was that the Franks and the Visigoths simply were more familiar with Rome, Roman ways and Rome uh, and had a closer connection to the Roman Empire than the Anglo-Saxons ever did. But the native Britons seemed to have rejected Roman ways before the Anglo-Saxons had established their kingdoms, and by the time the Germanic immigrants had arrived, they encountered a British society uh, much more closer to their own than Rome. Now, speaking of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, it would be a good time to note that as these various Germanic tribes moved into Great Britain, multiple kingdoms were established, commonly referred to as the Heptarchy. Now, from this name, you may be able to tell that historians typically divided up these small kingdoms into seven identifiable ones. And they were Wessex, Essex, Sussex, and you can see the root words for the West Saxons, East Saxons, and South Saxons in their names. In addition to East Anglia, and you can see the reference to the Angles there. Mercia, coming from the old Germanic word for borderlands. Northumbria, because they settled north of the Umber River in Kent. And I will be honest, I'm not exactly sure what the ultimate root of this Old English word is, but it is the area on the southeastern portion of Great Britain where many of the Jutes ended up migrating to. Now, there were other small minor kingdoms, but eventually these smaller kingdoms were absorbed into one another and consolidated over the next 400 years. And eventually, the House of Wessex came to rule most of the area of the old Heptarchy uh, by the time of King Egbert in the ninth century. Much of the history of Anglo Saxon England involved these kingdoms warring not only against the native Britain tribes, remember, they were the natives there, they were not of Germanic origin, but also fending off the Vikings. Uh, that would soon come and war in against each other, in an effort to consolidate power and territory. And eventually, the Wessex kingdom won out. Unfortunately, when many of these tribes migrated to Britain, they were illiterate and they did not record their history. We do not have the luxury of a St. Gregory of Tours, who did such a fine job of recording the history of the Merovingians. But all hope is not lost here. We are able to gather much of our knowledge about this period from archaeological evidence, such as uh, objects found in graves, and a tract written by a British monk named Gildas. Later on, the Venerable Bede completed his history of the English people in 731 AD, which does cover some history dating back to the earliest migrations. And one other important source uh, of Anglo-Saxon history comes from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle originally created in the 8th century during the reign of King Alfred. Now, recall from prior episodes that the Germanic immigrants were very much a family, kin, clan-oriented people. The uh, Anglo-Saxons, they were typically no different than the other Germanic tribes in this way. Often, large families or kin groups would form their own settlement unit, share resources, and share land allotment. And that's why you see so many place names today in England that end in ing, I-N-G, such as Hastings, or Reading, because the ing referred to uh, the people of the particular family, such as the people of Hesta, Hastings. We also discussed the Germanic folklore in Episode 3, and those legal customs also were carried over with them from their ancestral homelands, especially the practice of tribal assemblies, as we shall see. Now, the Anglo-Saxon tribes, as you also can imagine, were pagans at the time of their migrations. They worshipped gods who later became famous in Norse mythology, such as Tew, Woden, and Thor. That's where we get our modern names for the days of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And just like their ancestors of old, as Tacitus described in his History of Germania, they venerated nature, such as stones, trees, and woods. And just like the King Clovis and the Franks under the Merovingian rule, the Anglo-Saxons were eventually converted to Christianity, and the conversion process was initiated by the desires and efforts of Pope Gregory, who was very aware that King Ethelbert, who we mentioned in episode three and actually discussed, um, he was aware that Ethelbert was married to a Christian wife. And Ethelbert's story in in this regard is very similar to that of King Clovis, as you may recall, who married St. Clotilde, who was an important part of his conversion. So Pope Gregory charged a Roman monk named Augustine of Canterbury, not the same Augustine from the 400s, who was the Bishop of Hippo, a totally different person. Pope Gregory asked Augustine to travel to King Ethelbert, and sure enough, he was ultimately successful in converting this great Kentish king to Christianity. Augustine was installed as the first archbishop at Canterbury in 601 AD as the faith began to spread, and then monasteries also began to be established on the Great Britain Island. Interestingly, the Conversion of the Anglo-Saxon tribes happened on sort of a separate and somewhat later track than the conversion of Ireland, Wales, and Cornwall. Saint Patrick was the primary missionary to Ireland in the sixth century. Uh, the church is established in these areas primarily developed on monastic lines, uh, not not so much the diocesan structure that Ag- Augustine of Canterbury preferred and these separate lines of church expansion would lead to conflicts over church governance in the years to come. Now, while I find the history of the Anglo-Saxons fascinating in general, our focus in this podcast and this series of episodes is primarily legal and political, because we're making our big build-up to the Magna Carta in 1215. The roots of government that existed at the time of Magna Carta England began in Anglo-Saxon England, as you can imagine. Now, we mentioned that the Anglo-Saxons had divided Southern Britain into numerous kingdoms, seven big ones, and then several other minor or sub-kingdoms. Many of these kings who were really glorified tribal chieftains became subordinate to the more powerful kings. However, some kings in the Big Seven began to accumulate power and influence, even extending into the neighboring kingdoms. These over kings were called Bretwaldas, which was probably not a formal office, but more of a title held by superpowerful kings. And this overlordship almost always involves some type of military element, uh, as well as tribute that, that, that was also paid to them. And at times the Bretwalda even settled disputes between the warring sub-kings below him. So it's not hard to see why the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were headed on this path towards ultimate consolidation and unity. Ethelbert of Kent, for example, uh, he promulgated his laws of El- Ethelbert, you recall that we talked about in episode three, but well, he was an example of one of these Brett Waldas. S- Fears of power, they would shift from kingdom to kingdom over time with influence, for example, moving from Kent to Northumbria to Mercia, and eventually landing landing with the West Saxons. After the king, there was an aristocracy of sorts as well, with the Eldermen, or Thangs, that's T-H-E-G-N-S, sitting atop a list of Anglo-Saxon nobility. Their most important duties were to provide military service for the king when called upon. He may also be called upon to perform general administrative duties, similar to the counts in Merovingian Francia that we discussed in the last episode. They typically would come into possession of large estates as gifts from the king and were tied closely to their lands for survival, as we shall see. The kings did provide for a certain level of administrative control which grew more powerful over time as they consolidated loyalty and territory. By the 10th century, Anglo-Saxon administration was divided into areas called Hundreds. A royal manor house where the king could visit as he traveled the countryside remained at the heart of each of these districts. Such a royal manor, these were called tunes. T-U-N. And these were the centers of administration for the Anglo-Saxons where various government uh administrative needs were met, such as the collection of taxes. And we see place names such as Kingston reflecting this origin in the King's Tune. And speaking of taxes, those were collected based on hides, which in theory was supposed to be the area needed to support a free peasant and his family, and usually were agricultural farms. Historians do not know exactly how big or how many acres a hide actually consisted of, and probably would vary actually depending on which kingdom the hide was located in. But these free peasants formed the basis of Anglo-Saxon society, and they were referred to as chaorals, from where we get the modern word churl. They would typically cultivate one hide of land, and they were free peasants in the sense that they did not have any lords over them but for the king himself. The later feudalist system, with a strong hierarchical structure that existed at the time of Magna Carta, that had not come into England yet. But the Cheorle would owe the king personal service in the local militia, or what was called a fjord. He would also be required to financially support the king through what was called a feorm, or a food rent. And actually, this is where we get our modern word for farm, which still retains its connection or connotation with large tracts of land where food is grown. So for all intents and purposes, in early Anglo-Saxon England, the Chaoral owned the land that he cultivated, and he did not own any duties to a lord above himself, but, uh, but the king. It's because of this lack of formal feudal structure that would be prevalent after the Norman invasion that the Anglo-Saxons tend to have this reputation as rugged individualists that exercise local and self-autonomy. This system of land control appeared to gradually replace a system of common pastures that had existed. Uh, it likely is a hold- holdover from ancient tribal customs brought to Britain from their uh, old lands in Germany. But living an independent life off the land was not ultimately how reality played out. As it became obvious to the free peasants, that community and cooperation was going to be needed due to the vast areas of unprofitable soil. And so from this need for cooperation arose the old English village, which became the basis of social organization. Not this rugged individualist farmer type of notion that we think of when we think of American homesteaders of the 19th century, for example. It's not like that. This notion of rugged Anglo Saxon individualism is also mitigated by the fact that the free peasant did not, did still, I should say, did still owe duties to the king. Those duties included payment of the Feorm or the land rents to the king, but he also had to provide hospitality to the king and servants when the king would travel through the area. Uh, he had to provide those servants and feed those servants with food, in addition to providing entertainment and hunting opportunities for them. Additionally, the king was also entitled to have the roads and bridges maintained within his kingdom, and this was vital for military security and it was a duty owed to him by those within the realm. And naturally, when it came time to defend the realm from invaders, the king was entitled to call on his nobles, as well as the free peasants, to military service to defend the kingdom. So while it would serve the interests of those who opposed royal authority centuries later in England to claim that the Anglo-Saxon origins treasured individual rights and democracy of some sort, That notion of liberty was simply and literally a foreign concept to the Anglo-Saxon mind, which valued family, kin, and loyalty to the tribe, and later the king as well. Now, in order to administer these budding kingdoms, and this is really one of the great feats of the West Saxon kings after the separate kingdoms began to gel together England was divided into shires, each constituting a governmental unit of administration. The shires were then divided into smaller units of administration called the hundreds. The West Saxons usually get credit for this development because there's little evidence of this system existing prior to King Alfred in the late 800s. So it's safe to credit this development to the House of Wessex, the first real national royal dynasty in England. Now your next question may be, why were they called hundreds? And no one is really quite sure, but a popular theory is that it is in reference to the number of hides within it, which would of course make total sense, but again, no one can really say for sure. The king's administrator in each shire was a reeve, from which we get the word shire reeve, from which we get the modern word sheriff. This originally and gradually assumed the role uh, under the West Saxon kings that were formerly held by the eldermen. The reeve would collect royal revenues as, and act as the king's representative in that shire, like the eldermen and uh, like the eldermen before them, who were close companions of the king. They would also be tasked with enforcing the decisions of the assemblies. And you do remember the assemblies, don't you? You know, the things. Well, they never really went away, and they were maintained by the various Germanic tribes even after the migrations. Um, if you're not familiar with these assemblies, uh, please go back and check out uh, the episode, episode uh, three on Germanic folklore, where these assemblies are described in detail. Um, but these assemblies, they were often called to determine applicable customary laws and apply them to specific disputes. For example, the laws of Ethelbert, which we also talked about, which were really a written memorialization of those pre-existing customs. Okay, well, these assemblies, they remained in essential existence even after the development of the Shire and the Hundred system. Except the assemblies, what happened is, is they began to be organized based on the hundreds. So there would be different assemblies for each hundred. So what would happen is, is a group of free peasants from a particular hundred, may they may gather together in a public meeting, often those who would be knowledgeable of the customary laws, and then render judgments to resolve disputes involving their kinsmen of the area. Now, you may say, this does sound a little bit like democracy well it may sound that way but it wasn't the assemblies did not determine the law they did not ma- they did not make up the customs right then and there those had to be handed down as part of the tribal traditions and in some cases they were added to by limited royal edicts like like we did see with the laws of ethelbert The assembly, though, is more of a court for rendering judgment, which is why the old English term folk moot was used for the assembly. Moot being another word for an assembly or a court in Old English. So hopefully by now you can tell that land and control of it was the major economic driving force underlying Anglo-Saxon medieval society. What was the Anglo-Saxon view of land possession? Who distributed it? And what mechanisms did this occur by? Well, land was captured, purchased, or taken, usually from native Britons, but also from neighboring Anglo-Saxon cousins through the conquest. Not unlike the Merovingian practice in Francia, the early Anglo-Saxon kings would then grant various lands to his loyal followers. These grants of land were often recorded in written charters, which is how we know that they were there and how these grants uh, even existed. And by the time of King Alfred in the ninth century, an estate was known as a a book land uh, because it possessed as a, it was possessed as a result of a charter or a book, another name for a charter. These charters were often careful to reserve the rights of the king to receive military service, hospitality, and public works, like on bridges and roads. The remaining rights that went with the land were often left unstated or, or vague, and presumably what was left remained subject to the unwritten customary law. And also like the Merovingian practice, however, at times a charter could contain immunities, which would relieve the recipient of the land and his heirs, from the payment of certain dues to the king, and these were very valuable and often given to religious communities. Now, contrasted with the bookland, which may have immunities attached, uh, were what was called the folkland, which was land not granted by a specific charter and was still subject to customary payments and services owed to the king. Remember, the key distinction here is that only the king can create bookland or turn folkland into bookland. And also of importance is that nothing prohibited a recipient of the grant of land from uh, who received it from the king to lease that land out to others. Land hides would begin to be divided up into smaller units called yards. (laughs) To this day, a yard refers to a measurement and an area of land. Now, these, ten- these tenants were typically free peasants, payment but would pay the land- uh, landlord uh, typically in, uh, with money or by tendering crops that were harvested on the land. And out of these types of landlord-tenant relationships would develop the English manorial system in later years, as well as a more developed feudal structure, which we'll see and discuss in the next episodes here on Crowns and Constitutions. Uh, Slavery as a customary Germanic practice was also brought to Britain apparently in the early years, right after the migrations. uh, Even free peasants could own slaves. Um, So, free peasants were aware there was some level of hierarchical structure with their local king at the top, and uh, there may be some nobles below the king, even if the peasants did not necessarily owe feudal dues to those immediate lords. And at the end of the day, the Anglo-Saxon political and legal culture was hierarchical in nature and in no way resembled a democratic society. But at the same time, it uh, developed along feudal lines to the extent that it did under the Merovingians in Francia. For the most part, free peasants were free of any type of feudal obligations beyond those duties owed to their kings. And these duties were not imposed or forced on the people, but were simply a continuation of what was considered a well-organized social order designed to support the family-based structure and offer military protection from invaders. So at this point, I've laid out the basic legal and social framework under which the Anglo-Saxon kings developed from the time of the first migrations into the era, into the era of the West Saxon kings the Kingdom of Wessex. I gave you a lot of information to digest today, so I'm just going to attempt to kind of summarize what I covered. On one hand, the political and legal development occurring in Britain was similar to those discussed under the Merovingians in France that we uh, talked about in the last episode. Both the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons migrated into areas previously ruled and occupied by Rome where cities, towns, and legal institutions had been established. The difference, however, was that unlike in Francia, where the Franks simply adopted Roman practices, the Romans had mostly abandoned Britain to the native Britons by the time the Anglo-Saxons arrived. Rather than adopt Roman language, legal structures, and institutions, the Anglo-Saxons maintained their Germanic roots and absorbed or conquered the native Britons who were remaining there on the island. As a second key feature of Anglo-Saxon legal and political structures was that uh, they divided or their, their conquered lands into administrative dis- districts. While in Francia, these districts remained under the authority of officials called counts and dukes, these holdover titles from Rome or the Roman era. In Anglo-Saxon England, these districts were called shires and they were administered by eldermen and later the shire reeve and these shires were then further divided up into hundreds. A third feature I hope you noticed was this process of land distribution. This was also similar to the Frankish experience where the king used the distribution of land to secure loyalty from among his followers. This, of course, was done to reward those who were loyal in providing military service. This distribution of land was typically done through charters, and the king could reserve certain rights in the charters themselves, but would also grant immunities to the recipients. Also, like Francia, religious communities would benefit from the grant of these charters, even though they did not provide military service. They, of course, provided spiritual services for the kingdoms and the kings themselves. And while land was the medium through which the king secured loyalty and services needed to defend the kingdom. In Anglo-Saxon England, the free peasants usually possessed their land outright, or leased it from a lord. This notion of, pre, uh, of free peasant landholding, free from duties owed to a lord below the king, contrasted with the way land was being held and distributed in Francia at the same time. It was there in Francia that feudalism really began to take root and would only be introduced to England uh, in its fullest sense after the Norman Conquest. And it is to feudalism in the next episode that we will turn. What really is feudalism? How did it work? What were the pros and the cons? Well, stay tuned for episode six and find out. Have a good day.